1: Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 14 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The bi-weekly journey back in time where we explore the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Letting you know that if you ask me who my favorite ex-gal is, it's gotta be Xena Warrior Princess. I'm Adam.
0: And wondering why Rogue didn't just apply a few extra coats of lipstick whenever she wanted to give Gambit a smooch. I'm Michael, and joining us for this exciting episode is an old friend of mine from college. His name is Dan. Hey, guys. Thanks for uh, having me on the show. We went to film school together for the first couple of years, and then he went on to bigger and better things and is now a highly successful game designer for video games. Adam, Dan and I haven't talk in person in 17 years or so oh wow <laughs> so this is a reunion that's great and it is a reunion but i'm super excited because i i have a lot of fond memories of dan and i at college hanging out and playing video games
2: i started checking out your guys's backlog and I saw that you had the cover art in your art for the each episode. And mm-hmm. I was like, I used to own those. So I was a big fan of Wizard. It was always an exciting time to crack open those books.
0: Oh, great. Yeah, for sure.
1: Glad to hear it.
0: And so whenever we have a guest on, we like to give them a little chance to tell them about themselves. And Dan, can you give us your origin story? <laughs>
2: Yeah, my adventure with comics started with Marvel Universe cards. Uh, I was a child of divorce, and after school, I had to go to the YMCA, the after-school care, and I uh, met a bunch of other kids. And this is about when I was like seven, eight, nine, and we discovered these uh, Marvel collector cards. And then I was like, what are all these characters? Where are they from? You know. And so then I started figuring that out. Right around the time I started reading Infinity Gauntlet, Jim Lee started doing the new X-Men series. So that really got me kicked off. And then the McFarlane revamping Spider-Man, that was pretty much my obsession for the next probably 10 years. Uh, I went to the Joe Kubert School. They had a summer program in New Jersey,
1: and I did some uh, art training there. So was that a goal for you at the time? Was it just for fun, or did you feel like, maybe I want to give this a shot? Well, I was always drawing in the back of class instead of paying
2: attention to the teacher or doing homework. Uh, And I got really good at memorizing costumes, and you know, I was drawing Gambit and Magneto and, you know, stuff like that.
1: And what were your regular trips to the comic book store like? Did you have a particular store you went to all the time? And what did you usually look for on the racks?
2: Well, my dad was up in New Jersey and my mom was in Louisiana. So I flew back and forth. So I had a shop in Jersey and I had a shop in Louisiana that I would go to.
0: Dan, did you go to Dewey's by uh, by school? Dewey's comic, yeah. comic shop in, in, in Madison? That was a cool little shop. Really nice yeah. place in Madison, New Jersey. Dewey's comic shop. That was a
1: good spot for sure. But did you notice a difference between a New Jersey comic shop and a Louisiana comic shop?
2: No, they're pretty much universal.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I swear, Adam posted a picture the other day of him at the comic book store. And I was like, it literally feels like my comic book store here in Long Island. I was like, they look very much the same
1: <laughs> and the guy said he moved that store from his original location in georgia so it's just like yeah i guess wherever you go same basic design and idea
0: so dan i have an important question to ask yeah, what's a, a lot of our guests when we talk to them they tell us there is one tipping point where they sort of fall out of comics for a little while did you ever have a moment where you you fell out of it after a certain point while you were in high school or was it always kind of did it stick with you
2: uh it always kind of of stuck with me if anything it was other hobbies got in the way as you know i'm big into games and movies and Mm -hmm. stuff like that so a lot of times you know i'd spend money on saving up for a new playstation 2 and so that would take me away from the comics for a while but then big things would happen like image comics came out uh i was obsessed with spawn for a long time collected well over 200 issues of spawn and then took a break from that for a while and then
1: uh walking dead came out so then i hit
0: that pretty hard
1: i wish i still had those because they they blew up
0: (laughs) It it, it, did blow up, that's for sure.
1: So obviously you you were reading a lot of comics and you enjoyed them. But then it sounds like your life and career went into video games. How much would you say that the reading of comics influenced your work in the games industry?
2: Well, it's pretty funny. I went to a school uh, in Dallas called SMU Guildhall, and one of my instructors actually was an instructor back at Kubrick School, and he also worked with Rob Liefeld, and he had some pretty interesting stories to tell me about that.
1: Could you share any of those?
2: (laughs) Well, I just remember he was teaching us a lot of stuff and, you know, hero proportions and learning how to, to draw to scale, a heroic scale. You know, a typical person's like five heads tall, but a hero could be seven, eight heads tall. So mm-hmm. it was kind of like a really cool, like flashback to old comic book training. But he told me a story one time. He used to go to conventions with Liefeld because I can't remember, I can't remember the, the technical term, but, you know, Liefeld would do like page one, five, ten. And then my buddy would do the the fillers. Oh, okay. But he told me one story. They went to a a con and people were coming up to him with portfolios. And he'd look at the portfolio and flip through the pages and then just throw them in the trash. Oh, no. Those image guys were like rock stars back then. And I think the ego got to him a little
0: bit. I've been getting that impression. (laughs) So I, I have a pretty cool thing that I've been wanting to tell you about, Dan. So I've been teaching film for the past couple of years, and I started going back for uh, my MFA in screenwriting. And currently this month, I'm taking writing for video games. It It is so intense, like the things you need to know for writing for video games. But a lot of it, it translates very well to... Writing for comics in the, in the way that you do like a cutscene versus doing, you know, panels in a comic for writing. It was very, very interesting. And I've done some really cool stuff that I didn't know how parallel they are in the style of storytelling. And we were using Excel to like link different lines, which was really cool. And I thought it was very interesting how the way that they write for video games is, is very similar to the way that, that comic books are written. Yeah, it's very segmented. And episodic, almost like 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 a a
1: comic. Outside of Spawn, Dan, I'm curious if you had to choose your number one book, maybe overall, is there one that you always go back to?
2: Uh, It's X Men. I just love that early '90s revamp. The Uncanny was cool, but I always felt overwhelmed because it was like issue 385, you know. And it's like, where do I even start? When they started that, you know, the early '90s, you know, X Men number one, and they had that multi-cover. I had the one with Magneto in the front, and it was a good place to, to jump off. And then from there, I started collecting the graphic novels. And Mike and I have a passion for Batman, so then yes. I got started getting into Dark Knight Returns, so that's probably pretty high up there, too. Mm. I didn't fall into
1: like Frank Miller until later in life, but yeah, uh, same. I liked him, too. Well, that's awesome. Well, you know, speaking of the X-Men, Mike, I want to call you Mike now. Michael! <laughs> <laughs> I say we open up Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. I can't wait.
0: Here we go. Dear Wizard, in issue number 11, you actually were foolish enough to reiterate the idea that Iron Man could single-handedly defeat X-Men. Ha! What a joke. Let's see. Iron Man, a hero who is a recovering alcoholic with heart trouble and a screwed-up nervous system. Not to mention... He has no abilities himself. Wolverine could slip in and open that tin can in a hurry if the two should ever combat. That doesn't sound right. Um, <laughs> even if Wolverine didn't get him, Jean Grey's awesome TK abilities would shut Iron Man down in a matter of minutes. Game over. Shell head Tommy Woodward... Marion, Kentucky.
1: So I don't know if you're aware of this, Dan. I don't know how much Wizard you were reading back in the day, but for many issues, there has been this discussion, you know, that was brought on by a guy named Doug Goldstein, who was answering the letters in the early days. He said Iron Man could kill all the X-Men. Like, he was just adamant about it. And so everybody's been writing in. It's gone back and forth and back and forth. And so there was another letter, I'll just mention here before we get to the response, that there used to be letter art. So when the people would send in their letters, they'd decorate the envelopes and on one of them here is iron man in outer space launching his repulsor ray down to the planet earth and he says hey wolverine
0: heal this (laughs) dan it's so funny like these little letters are what twitter is now it's just a bunch of trolls going after each other and it's really funny
1: all right so here's what wizard had to say about
0: that i was beginning
1: to wonder if everyone had forgotten our great iron man versus the x-men debate well, Tom, you and a thousand other fans who wrote in screaming about how the ex-muchachos would toast Iron Man have forced the following response from Doug, I'm a beaten man, Goldstein. Okay, there's two reasons the Iron Man couldn't defeat the X-Men single-handedly. One, they were invisible to his sensors, and so he couldn't lock onto them with his weapons system. Two, he never got around to making his helmet psychic powers-proof, so Xavier could toast him pretty easily. Psylocke couldn't because she doesn't have the range that's it besides those two things iron man could kill the x-men or any x-team single-handedly that should put an end to that
0: until next month
1: (laughs) yeah but dan on that particular comment on number one that that it was saying that he couldn't lock onto them with his weapons systems do you know why that is i don't okay my understanding is that there was a whole storyline in the 80s where the x-men became invisible to the rest of the world so that they couldn't be hassled oh wow i think that's what he's referring to that basically nobody can see the x-men right now so even iron man couldn't find them to kill them i've never heard that before
0: pretty funny because when they were doing the messiah war and a couple different things the x-men had taken over alcatraz island and all of the x-men and all the mutants lived on alcatraz and they made it invisible to the rest of the world they literally rehashed an idea from the 80s in the late 2000s which is pretty funny
1: yeah it's just like well this is canon i mean you could do this why not do it all the time (laughs) our uh, past guest jeff could clarify that one for us again and let us know about that x history but uh, speaking of x history and mystery we have another quick letter here that i thought was pretty and it has to do with the identity of cable which at this point still had not been revealed who is cable really
0: dear wizard anyone remember nth man he was a john doe super soldier With white hair, who in the last issue, number 16, warped off somewhere. Now you remember him? Well, I know it wasn't part of the Marvel Universe, but Cable can skip through alternate realities and times. So I say that Nth Man, number one, was Cable's first appearance. Ha! John Jordan... Halifax, Canada.
1: And wizard responds always good to wrap up a letters page with a really weird letter. nth Man cable? <laughs> I've heard dozens of cable theories ranging from cannonball being the big C or even cable being a clone of Nathan Summers, but the nth Man?
0: Come on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I don't know, are you guys familiar with Nth Man comics? Have you ever come across them in back issue bids or quarter bids? No,
0: the, no? The only the only thing I've ever heard of the nth term was nth metal, but that's DC. Uh, I've never heard of the term nth Man before.
1: Yeah, he was basically just like a one-man GI Joe because he fought with guns, but he also had a samurai sword or a katana or whatever he would battle people with. And yeah, he's just like a super soldier who could fight. And I, I've, I picked up a few issues back in the day. I was like, yeah, there's nothing here in this comic. <laughs> there's nothing to grab onto at all. So yeah, see why it only made it sixteen issues. So I just thought that was funny. Like, grab a super obscure character. Seems like something that nowadays they probably would do, right? If there was a myst- uh, some type of mystery character. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's nth man (laughs) Yeah, obviously, of course, why wouldn't it be? We're ready to rev up The Wave Riders Wayback Machine Now we're dealing with October of 1992, and there is a lot of hits in this this particular month. We're going to start off with a personal favorite of mine, and I think every 10-year-old boy at the time was in love with this movie, The Mighty Ducks on October 2nd. I remember seeing this movie the weekend it came out and I was like, I could play hockey too. Then I tried to learn how to play hockey and I could not play hockey.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Dan, were you a a hockey
2: fan? No, I wasn't athletic whatsoever.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I would fall into that category as well. In fact, you know, I was the fat kid. So of course, everybody just called me Goldberg, you know, and so he becomes (laughs) my hero. I am Goldberg, the goalie! I was like, all right, go Goldberg, you do it. Although I, I always felt like I was somehow a, combination of Beaverman, you know, the nerdy, fast talking redheaded kid with the glasses, and Goldberg. I was somewhere in between there. Either way, not socially accepted.
0: <laughs> so the next one, I thought this movie came out earlier than this, but apparently it came out in ninety two is Under Siege with Steven Seagal on October eighth. I saw that one opening weekend. Did you really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, I didn't see that till probably VHS several months later, and I loved that movie. And then when the sequel came out of Few years later, I hated the sequel so much that I was like, How could you ruin such an awesome movie? He's on a ship.
1: It's cool. It was on a train in the
0: sequel, right? Yes, it was. See, I
1: have both of them on VHS because I need to watch them, but I have not seen them yet. Really? Oh,
0: Under Siege, the first one, is very good. Dark Territory is. It's fine. (laughs) It's fine. So, the next movie is a movie that I can admit I have never seen only because the original one of these trilogy frightened me so much that i didn't want to go back and this is army of darkness from october
1: 9th oh man i mean if you were reading comics at this time you couldn't escape the army of darkness ad in uh, comics everywhere yeah back cover inside back cover whatever yeah like back <laughs> Oh, but I love this movie. It is so much fun. Yeah, because it's weird because it feels like this is what Sam Raimi would go on to do, right? Started out with that horror and it was a little quirky. This is like action adventure in medieval times with a little twist of horror. And then he goes on to do Hercules and Xena and all these shows that were kind of more in this vein. But yeah, I mean, I feel like this is the movie where everybody fell in love with Bruce Campbell, right? Absolutely,
0: yeah, I just I I never saw it. I I can honestly admit I because I guess maybe the, the cover art or the or the poster scared me or whatever, and I was like ah, I I was afraid of seeing Evil Dead and Evil Dead Two. You were like, scared of see... his
1: manly rippling chest, Oh, oh yeah.
0: <laughs> but, but wasn't he like standing on a pile of skulls or something like that? Well, or, yeah, you know
1: I, mean? I mean he's got a girl around his leg and he's got his chainsaw <laughs> hand. I mean, there's nothing really scary. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, you got to check this one out, Michael. It is a barrel of laughs. It is yeah, so I had funny. A...
2: I had a tradition. My parents would go to bed, and I would put on HBO or Showtime late at night and stay up and watch whatever came on. And one of those nights, Army of Darkness hit and changed my life. (laughs) (laughs) Next one of you primates, even yeah, exactly. I was just about to say that was my favorite (laughs) line. He says, "Next one of you
0: primates, it touches me." (laughs) (sighs) All right, I'll have to watch it and I'll report back to both of you guys. Please (laughs) do. So, the next movie I have never heard of in my entire life is a movie called Dr. Giggles on October 23rd. It sounds wildly inappropriate if you look at it from 2020 eyes, but I don't know. Have you ever heard of this movie at all, Dr. Giggles? How about you, Dan?
2: Not really. I remember seeing
0: trailers for it. Yeah,
1: th- this is another in the style of like kind of cartoonish horror. So, so it's yeah. kind of goofy, and you could get behind it. I mean, it stars Larry Drake, who was the bad guy in Dark Man, which we will review on a bonus episode at, at some
0: point. We'll get uh, to it. I'm building up ability to rewatch Dark Man. I don't know. I really, <laughs>
1: but but yeah, it's it's, it. it's really just like a wacky. If if you want to get a feeling for it and get introduced to the film just with a fun spin there's a great podcast called VHS Bandits and they reviewed it recently they're just like three goofy buddies from Boston who talk about movies and they had a blast talking about Dr. Giggles but the weird thing is it was being co-produced by Dark Horse Comics who were also releasing a film adaptation in comic book form so obviously you kind of see like they were trying to get into it of course soon enough we'd get the mask but this was like their first foray into film
0: All right. Well, what do you know? So now we're going to dive into some music. And so we're going to start off with REM's Automatic for People featuring Everybody Hurts and Man on the Moon on October 5th. Everybody Hurts, in particular, was a song that you couldn't get away from. It was everywhere. VH1, Z100, uh, MTV, anywhere you tuned into, this song was constantly on. And it was one of those videos you couldn't miss. Like You always remember this video from the first second you heard the note you knew which song this was. I always thought it was
1: an 80s song because I think of R.E.M. as an 80s band and so when I saw it here in 92 I was like oh okay. I mean I mostly know it because it is part of a sad comedy montage in A Night at the Roxbury when the brothers have a fight and they break up. <laughs> <laughs> and so like they do that whole thing but also Man on the Moon and I love Andy Kaufman I have like all the biographies on him. I have all these bootleg DVD DVDs and stuff I've collected over the years of his performances on TV, and so I love that Jim Carrey movie, Man on the Moon. Of course, we saw that documentary recently too. But and so that song
0: obviously inspired the title. Yeah, it is a very good song. Now we have Soul Asylum with Grave Dancers Union featuring Runaway Train on October 6th. Now, this was another song that you could not get away from in this time period. It was on all the time. And it's still a good song, and I still listen to it. Yeah,
1: well, and the music video, right, is what really gave it its infamy, I would yeah. say. Because that, that that wasn't what the song was about, is my understanding. But, the you know, they got wrapped up in, okay, well, there there's a cause, and we had an idea here to help with finding, you know, lost kids kids and so i mean it's a really depressing music video so if you heard the song first and never saw the video i think you'd be in great shape but then you just think of the visuals every time you hear it on the radio now
0: it was actually one of the few music videos that like when i was in undergrad i wanted to make music videos because that one was so good and i want to make music videos like that whenever i'd shoot you know side projects for people that were like crummy new jersey bands that i would help out and do music (laughs) videos for
1: care to name any of those bands michael uh
0: i, I couldn't even remember them and they're probably not even together anymore but there was this i had to do this one band music video and they wanted to shoot it half using betamax and half using mini dv because they wanted the grittiness of one and the, uh, it was and I, uh, we, we shot it all over my campus uh, at fairly dickinson where dan and i went around the mansion i was shooting and all this stuff there was like a old building that had broken windows and they were just smashing stuff and uh, i don't know even know, and the lead singer was not really like compelling, but the drummer was cool, and it was kind of like I was focusing more on the drummer. It was pretty <laughs> anyway, so now the next uh, album that came out is the Insane Clown Posse's "Carnival of Carnage" featuring Kid Rock, and that came out on October 18th. I don't know a single Insane Clown Posse song, so I'll leave this guys to you. If you guys know any of their music, Dan, you a juggalo? I am not. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I watched the documentary on the Juggalos. That's about as uh, far as we we go
1: over there. Yeah, I mean, I remember watching MTV one day and my introduction to Insane Clown Posse was Shaggy 2 Dope being interviewed because they had been signed to a Disney-owned record label. And right before the album was supposed to come out, Disney figured out what kind of music they did. And so they dropped them. And so they were like complaining, we're going to sue Disney, we're going to do all this. They don't understand what we're about. And I was like, who is this guy? He's got a beard and he's wearing clown makeup like i just i didn't understand what i was looking at it, it was a really weird situation but then i started like hear the music like great malenko wave your wand and uh, you know who's going chicken hunt we going chicken hunt like there's this weird weird songs that they have and then i had this guy in high school that i was an acquaintance with but he was super into insane cloud posse and he was also super into wrestling and they released this videotape which was like all like the barbed wire matches and like the bloodiest matches from japan and so he's like you gotta come over and watch this it's awesome it's <laughs> but, but there was in st cloud posse doing commentary over the matches this one's for kevin hellion's listening out there but i remember they talked about the match terry funk is 97 years old and he doesn't look a day over 70 like that was what? like their running joke they would just keep upping his age
0: see what's gonna happen in this match right here drunk terry funk and cactus sack in the main event of stranglemania look at this Cactus Sacky's, uh, looks like a little bit more better shape than Terry Flunk, uh, Guido.
2: I'm not sure about that. but I would say Terry Flunk is in tremendous shape for being 92 years old. He's only got so much fuel on that old rickety body. You know, he's near 95.
1: There you go again, talking about the age. Listen to me, okay? That man is 107 years old, but he wrestles as if he was only 63. That man has the strength of a child. That man, look at, right, He's left, punching him for right, real. Left, that man has the, the heart of a young stallion. Well, he might have the heart of a young stallion, but he's got the
2: strength of a young mosquito. Do you guys remember Bobcat Goldthwaite, the guy? Of course, yeah. yeah. Ah. He was on the Joe Rogan podcast, and he has an amazing story about being at the gathering of the Juggalos. I highly suggest you, you Google that and check it. I don't want to ruin the, ruin the yeah. story because the way he tells it is his own way, you know? It's pretty amazing. He really? hangs out with a clown named Upchuck. and. Uh, <laughs>
0: I dated a girl in high school who was obsessed with this band, and she and her brother went. And, like, I was like, I don't know who this band is. I'm like, you go with your brother. I'm not going with you. But, like, they had full makeup on their faces and everything. And I was like, what? Granted, the relationship didn't last much longer after that, but it was. I was going to say, that's when you decided you're going to marry (laughs) her. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know it. But was like, it was a, it was a very bizarre. I'm like, all right, you guys do your thing. I'm gonna go home. I mean, the one thing I'll say
1: about ICP is they have a lasting legacy on back windows <laughs> because it's either Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes peeing on something, or it's that ICP hatchet man. Yep. You know, the red silhouette with the the hatchet and the dreadlocks, and mm-hmm. you're just like, oh, they're a Juggalo.
0: Okay. That's what that is. I didn't know that was yeah. a reference. Yeah. Oh wow. Yep. 100%. So it shows how much I know. So the next one is. Prince love symbol album featuring the change of Prince to the symbol which lasted from 1993 to 2001 in protest of how he was treated by Warner Brothers recording label which is very interesting I forgot that it was because of how he was treated by Warner Brothers which is very interesting I'm a huge Prince fan Prince and I actually share a birthday which is pretty awesome and he did the Batman album which is amazing this was not one of my favorite ones of his albums but I I do love a couple songs off of it but I'm forever I will love prince
1: yeah i never got into prince my best friend jeff uh, who i do sequel quest with loves prince he's seen him live and enjoys wow. his stuff but i just remember this when he became the symbol how big a joke that was in pop culture for all those years people just couldn't help themselves like what do we call him now this that you know oh the symbol oh, ho, ho, ho. you know like, that was a source of comedy that you could count on during that whole period till he changed back to prince
2: yeah. I remember the controversy of the symbol being more memorable than the uh, album itself.
0: Yeah, that's true. The guitar was cool though. I have to say that was pretty neat. Yeah, his custom guitar was awesome. Yeah. And that is our Wave Riders Wayback Machine for October of nineteen ninety two. Adam, what do you got in our table of contents for this month?
1: All right, well here we are. October nineteen ninety-two Wizard number fourteen. The cover Oh, it's the X Gals. That's right. This is uh, something everybody's been waiting for. I think they're going to get your attention because we got Jean Grey, we got Jubilee, we got Psylocke, we got Rogue and Storm on a cover by Art T. Bear. Now I have to admit, all these years, of course, I've called him Art Thibert. That's what's been on my mind if I was going to pronounce his name. Yeah, old Art Thibert. You know, he drew X Men for a while. And what do you guys think of this cover?
0: I think Dan could have drawn a better cover than this, personally. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's all right. It looks like it's
2: really trying to capitalize on the the Jim Lee. It,
0: it Jim does. Lee. It does feel like it's copycatting Jim Lee a lot. Yeah.
1: And I'm sure that was the directive he got at the time. if He was going to take yeah. over the book.
0: The other thing that I feel like I've noticed is like a lot. A lot of their face structures are very much the same. Maybe their eyes are a little bit different, but their the way, the way he drew their faces is almost identical yeah
1: to me the main issue is the proportions there is a strange deal with the arm lengths especially for storm i think he was trying to go for perspective but instead he like shrunk her down because she's in the very back of everybody but she just looks like she's been scrunched yeah. there's
2: five people on the cover and there's one foot
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's interesting here because what T-Bear tells Wizard in his interview is he's talking about that he is part of the quote, West Coast invasion of comics professionals that included, you know, Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee and Scott Williams and Will Portasio And so like, he's like, we're all from the West Coast and we all have a similar style. We're calling it the West Coast look, you know, and I was like, okay, well, I guess that's true. I mean, these styles were very influential and everybody was doing what they were doing. But what Art says is he actually had only been working as an inker for like the last three years. And so he was adapting his style to other people's styles. And so he was kind of learning it that way. But he was afraid when he was getting this new X-Men assignment because he hadn't done any penciling for so long. He'd only inked. And so it was kind of overwhelming to be like considered the guy to follow Jim Lee. But what I found interesting beyond this, they had him scheduled to do a cable ongoing series in 1993 but he at DC was also responsible for redesigning Nightwing to bring about a, what he called a, quote the disco Elvis look <laughs> <laughs> and as a result as it was back in the day if you're a great artist suddenly you're also going to be a writer so he was co-writing the book with somebody named Pamela Winiceta, who I've not heard of her work before but I just thought that was interesting that he was basically relaunching Nightwing in the DC universe what do you remember about that michael
0: so i have the first issue of nightwing in in the new costume and the rebranding of him i loved that issue i read that thing cover to cover several several times but i only think i collected maybe the first two or three issues that went out of that series because it wasn't that interesting to me but the the cover was beautiful and i loved it and i bought it for that and i was never a big fan of the disco look back in when i was a kid now i appreciate it more as an adult but as a kid i was like. I don't get this look like this is not what i think robin would look like as an adult and then they did this rebranding a new look for him which i i loved so and,
1: and this is the one with kind of like the yellow v on his chest right this is that's the style
0: yes it's crazy that it lasted that long yeah then, then they did later on the the blue logo which was another relaunch of nightwing years and years later so i also have the number one of that too
1: now dan did you while you were reading x-men were you paying attention to the artists so did you see okay there's art t bear he's drawing x-men now did that click for you i didn't really pay attention a lot to the people behind it unfortunately
2: until i was older and started understanding what it takes to make a living as an artist. It was Todd McFarlane and Greg Capullo. Those were the first when I started to learn, like, oh, there's
1: inkers, and then the Inker can go
2: do his own thing. And Greg was doing his own spin-off stuff. So it was kind of cool to follow those guys' careers.
1: Oh, interesting. So at the time X-Men for you was just cool action, cool character designs. I like this book.
2: Yeah. I didn't mention before, but it was like a lot of the action figures. You know, Toy Biz came out oh, with that yeah. line. And so I was obsessed with the figures and then i'd collect the figures and then I'd, I'd come across a character i didn't know so i'd have to research it and it was before the age of the internet so yeah, or, yeah. I, I didn't have access to it anyway so i read the back of the box and i looked at you know what the comic shop and said hey what issue is apocalypse from that kind of thing
1: yeah that, i mean that was a huge part for me i wasn't reading x-men comics but i collected all of the toys so yeah. it was like it really came down to just yes these are cool character designs and i'll grab random issues here and there and i'll watch the cartoon but yeah definitely the entry point with the action figures was huge for a lot of us absolutely So in the Wizard news section, they report, shocker, Jim Shooter has left Valiant Comics. I mean, he was the guy who was the figurehead of it all. He, you know, former (coughs) editor chief of Marvel, now launching this new comic company that's huge. They're the top books as far as Wizard is concerned, you know, the best storytelling, the best art, so on and so forth, and uh, now he is gone. And it's been reported that Barry Windsor Smith, who was at the time, you know, an artist and co-plotter on some books, is, promoted to president. Bob Layton, also an artist and co-plotter, is becoming editor-in-chief. And so according to Wizards Crystal Ball, their prediction is they're saying that though Shooter brought a lot to the table creatively, they have, quote, many talented and intelligent individuals at the top of the company who will keep it growing as a top-tier publisher. So it's kind of like, yeah, we lost a guy who writes some stuff. But overall, I think Valiant's going to be just fine. Now, Dan, did you ever get into Valiant Comics? I did not. Were you even aware of them? Did to even like cross your mind, like oh, there's this character over here. What's this company? No, it was Marvel Image. A little bit of Malibu, remember Malibu? Yeah, oh yeah.
2: And then of course, Star Horse. Dark Horse was like the rated R, heavy metal stuff.
1: <laughs> Wizard News also reporting, and this is big news here that Marvel has purchased fleer trading card company which means that their relationship with skybox is over and they will be in charge of their own card design you said dan you got into comics because you saw the trading cards you saw the characters there i mean that's what marvel was making their money with was trading cards so of course let's cut out the middleman have our own company you said you discovered them with a bunch of friends but where were you guys buying them oh it was a really
2: cool video rental store slash convenience store you know, that had all this stuff up front. And I remember the Marvel series one, you could squeeze the p- packs and feel which one had a hologram because the, oh. hologram, the hologram cards were actually cut larger than the rest of the cards. So you could squeeze the side of the packs <laughs> and go, Oh, this has got a Wolverine hologram in it. I wish I had known that trick back in the day, man. And I think they didn't
1: fix it till like series three, which was two years later. So, and were you still collecting by then? Did you keep buying the card sets? Yeah, I had, I actually did some little research. I
2: noticed that around series 3 I started to drop out there was the Marvel masterpieces and I think you guys talked about that before those were beautiful and I had
1: those too this was the beginning of the end for me as well when they bought Fleer and Marvel was doing the cards just something changed I still bought them for a few years in but I just noticed they were getting more expensive they were getting more subsets and just making it difficult to get everything and so I was just like yeah I just don't enjoy it anymore but you also gotta feel bad for Skybox I mean Skybox was really raking in the dough thanks to marvel now they're like yeah bye yep And then finally, as we close out the Wizard News, there is an announcement that DC is officially launching their Vertigo line of books to publish more adult stories like The Sandman with Neil Gaiman, Hellblazer, Swamp Thing, Animal Man, and more. And Karen Berger is the group editor of the line, and she says, quote, We've always tried editorially to shake up the status quo. Now we have the freedom to take it even further. It's almost like being rewarded for bad behavior. <laughs> but I, this is weird for me because I could have sworn that vertigo existed before 92 but i think it's just because the titles existed but they didn't officially have a home for them i guess where they were all under one line
0: yeah dc oftentimes does like a backpedaling so to speak like oh we've got all these lines now we're gonna make it into vertigo and then when vertigo faded away a few years ago now they've started doing the dc black label where they could do you know artists created content and darker stuff and more violent stuff and so on and so forth so it's kind of like they do it after the fact they've already started do oh it's co- we got a cool title we're gonna make a label we're gonna put it under and that's what they've done for the few things i actually really like vertigo i was a big fan of hellblazer um, I really did like Swamp Thing. Later years, there was a, a book called 100 Bullets, and I read the entire series of that, which I really, really enjoyed.
1: As your tastes matured there, Dan, did you ever get into Vertigo?
2: I, uh, I have a funny anecdote about that. I went to a Comic Con with my mom. Uh, a guy was selling grab bags for five bucks. And really? you pull out your, you know, it was a stack of books. And you got like 10 books, but uh, I pulled out mine, and it was a Sandman number one. Oh, wow. Wow. And the guy was like, hey, good draw. And he's like, throw all the nine other books away. Keep (laughs) that one. Put it in a bag with a card, you know? And so my mom took it and held on to it. And then she started flipping through it and saw all the stuff that was in it. And I never saw it. I never got to look at it.
1: I I don't know know what she she saw,
2: but she threw it away. No, no, mom. (laughs) I still, to this day, I'm almost 40 years old. I still will not let her forget. That she threw oh. away Sandman number one.
0: So. Oh my goodness, you should, me as an adult, I'd be like, let's mail this out and get it graded right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm glad the guy was good about it, because I thought the way that story was going to go was, oh, that wasn't supposed to be in there. Uh, You you, you gotta give that that back. back, Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, wow, that is a story. Woo, mom, come on. All right. So, speaking of a little bit of darkness, uh, DC also this month is launching Eclipso, The Darkness Within. This is going to be a huge crossover running through 10 DC annuals during the summer. For those who don't know Eclipso, here is his, speaking of trading cards, DC Cosmic Cards bio... The ultimate shady operator, Eclipso is the dark half of physicist Bruce Gordon, victim of a sorceress curse that releases a sinister second self from within him whenever he is confronted by an eclipse. The super strong eclipso is a savage creature who casts his evil shadow over Earth with the help of his black diamond, which projects chilling force fields and powerful lazy beams. Lazy powerful laser lazy beams. Beam. <laughs>
0: Play
1: more! <laughs> it's <got lazy> beams. <laughs> but here's the little trivia what is
0: the only thing that can weaken Eclipso? what do you guys think uh i remember from the animated series there was the, oh i don't remember dan do you remember is it actually an eclipse
1: uh, no that's what gives him his power he loses his power through solar energy as uh, so bad as that is his kryptonite solar energy when it, the sun is not blocked but he was this goofy silver age villain because that's kind of a weird premise right it's like there's an eclipse in this case what they were doing is they were revamping him as a big deal bad guy now they're saying there's this ancient gem called the heart of darkness that gets cut up by this explorer that discovers it and now these gems are scattered all over over the world so when a hero in the dc universe comes into contact with the black eclipso diamond they turn dark they give into anger and rage and vengeance you know so like that's the basic premise behind this is all the dc heroes are turning evil so wonder woman goes bad batman goes bad superman goes bad like it's a, a big deal and this is what's funny though is the editor on these books michael yuri he says quote he's a major villain he could probably kick Darkseid's side's butt ha <laughs> Ha <laughs> And so they're saying, we're actually, uh, we're using all the Silver Age stories. They're still going to be canon, but it was part of his master plan all these years to look weak because his alter ego is a scientist who studies solar energy. So if his solar energy research allows the world to run on solar energy, then everybody could defeat Eclipso. So he was keeping, you know, this guy in check by just being a loser who gets beaten all the time when he turns into a villain. But I just think it's hilarious that they're basically trying to positioned him as he's the strongest being in the dc universe but aren't they all
0: <laughs> i used to always get eclipso mixed up with that other villain that could mimic any hero's powers uh what was his name uh it was like a machine it was it's like an android but if he t- touches you he can mimic your powers so he can mimic superman's powers or wonder woman's ah, okay or, uh, i was thinking of a mazo amazing Eclipso, that's how i got the mix up but
1: yeah they do have a similar look you're right but yeah then their whole plan was after this event then he's gonna get an ongoing series which they're bringing up is super rare for a villain to get an ongoing series about them just destroying the world which is what happens he like takes over a south american country but i actually have Eclipso, the darkness within number two which is the end of the whole saga and so it's drawn by Bart Sears and basically what happens is he's got everybody under his spell and what he does is he merges with them all so he absorbs their powers and their life energy and so he's just this big blob of flesh and whatever and then he can form himself into a giant eclipso and the only way they defeat him is by Starman at the time. He is powered by solar energy so he goes inside and he blows himself up and sacrifices himself. You have Guy Gardner saying, Look, like Eclipso's breakfast just went nova. and superman say good lord Starman! he stopped eclipso at the cost of his life (laughs) anyway so yeah so that's how it ended but you know bart Sears has been doing a lot of wizard covers but i gotta say you know this book features like every major dc hero at the time and he is no george perez the work it just looks rushed and putting everybody in the same panel just looks awkward like he's just he's not quite got that down george perez was a master and uh, he could only hope to be even half as good and he's maybe a quarter as good i would say uh, but have you got? Do you guys remember Eclipse o? Does that ring a bell at all, Dan? Did you ever come across those? I wasn't into DC aside from Batman, so I didn't, I didn't catch him
0: Yeah, no, I, I, did, I didn't read that book at all.
1: Yeah, and actually, I correct myself because I don't see Batman in this. So maybe there was enough going on. Like Nightwing is one of the heroes that gets possessed, but I don't see Batman included. So he must have been so busy in his own book, they just left him alone.
0: Was this during the time that Nightfall was? starting to ramp up and everything yeah
1: because yeah. we had you know we just reviewed Sword of Azrael so it makes sense now let's get more into the X-Men Dan is here with us after all and so there is an article here called X-Overs which is basically you know crossovers X is a cros- anyway uh, it's a basic rundown of all the past X-Men issues included in crossover events so stuff again mostly from the 80s Fall of the Mutants Inferno and then more recent stuff Extinction Agenda Execution song that is about to kick off here did you read any of those books dan like does the extinction agenda as an event ring a bell to you no (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it's one of those things where it's kind of like okay the x-men are doing another crossover all right this is their annual event we get it we get it the one thing
2: i did do when i went back to the the uh, Uncanny series was mostly about origins and where certain characters came from. I was really into Angel, how Angel became Archangel and
0: stuff like that. My knowledge of that only stemmed from the animated series of how that happened. Yeah, a lot of
1: us probably got our education there. But then they have another X-Men-based article here called Mutants as Metaphor, which nowadays, especially with the films and everything, you know, it's been put into our heads that the X-Men were a stand-in for any oppressed minority. But what's weird is they only mention that in like one sentence and then the article becomes a rundown of the team's entire publication history of basically just saying okay these were the creative teams that kept the book going over the years you know to the point you know obviously Stanley Jack Kirby started the book and then it never was popular in the early days so it just became a reprint book and then even before they did the the giant size X-Men number 1 which really made them popular Neil Adams was an artist on the X-Men in the 70s. And what's interesting is, so they go from this article to Neil Adams being interviewed as now Neil Adams Continuity's founding father. So he is the publisher of Continuity Comics. Could you identify a Continuity comic, please?
0: No, not even a little. Never even heard of it.
1: Well, they were producing your favorites, like Crazy Man, Miss Mystic. (laughs) armor earth 4 megalith and most successfully you probably heard of this one from the cartoons bucky o'hare anybody green rabbit in space do you guys have a cricket sound effect yeah.
0: <laughs> we're, we're, we're gonna be getting it into this one yeah for sure nothing huh nothing <laughs>
1: Bucky O'Hare, I remember seeing the action figures and then seeing commercials for, oh, there's an animated series and all this stuff. But, Neil Adams obviously was this, like, monumental force in the late 60s and 70s in terms of comics. He had really changed the way that people drew comics, the way that comics were colored. He came from this world of advertising and understood printing and so he revolutionized a lot of things that hadn't been updated in their industry. But then, now, you know, he has not been a regular artist for many years. and he's like, everybody's creating their own comic companies. Okay, we're gonna create our own comics company. And I also saw recently continuity comics, these titles. I did an article covering big, bad Beetleborgs. Dad, do you remember this later edition of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers style action shows?
0: Yes, I do. Do you remember where
1: the main setting was on that show? Yeah.
0: It was was in a desert, right? Wasn't it like a...
1: No, no desert. I think you're thinking of VR Troopers. But when it was just the kids, they were in a comic book store. And that was like the main focus of the show is they love the Big Bad Bealborg's comic. And then they got to take on those powers. But in the background, they had actual comic books of the day of the 90s on the racks. So I did a whole article for the Retro Network pulling, you know, screen grabs of everything you could see. And probably the highest volume of comics they had there were continuity comics, Earth 4 and Megalith. Like, this is what really? I'm seeing. And I'm like, what is this? And I read this article. I'm like, oh, that was continuity comics. But I think the reason we probably didn't hear about them as much is Neil Adams is saying they've been focusing more on quality than quantity or even getting their books out on time. And they didn't have the star power of image, right? They didn't have the hype. So their books weren't coming out as often. And they said, well, we want to do quality storytelling and we're only going to release the book when it looks great and it's written well and everything and so what he said is that there's also some criticism that all the continuity artists draw like neil adams and he admits well i hired some people because they came in with samples and it looked like my work so yeah i'm a great famous artist and people like my style so why not hire them he's like but they don't all draw like me but like Michael said I was able to make it out to a comic book store this last week and in the quarter bins after I read this article I was like there's a continuity comic right here it's starring Armor and the Silver Streak yeah unfortunately this is a very dense sci-fi story about two brothers abducted by an alien empire and enhanced with powers they become slaves they get their hands chopped off and then they get robotic hands put on that have laser powers it's very strange uh, but they're planning a breakout so don't worry yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's beautiful art, but none of the characters are very distinct how they're written. Especially if there's like dozens of new alien races they keep dropping in. And they're like, oh yeah, they, on this planet they do things this way. And, and they're just like, ugh. So yeah, it was not good. Next here, a section that we usually pass over, Michael, is Palmer's Picks. they usually talking about kind of these underground comics and stuff we didn't have a history with. Luckily this month, Tom Palmer is providing a rundown of Alan Moore's body of work. And basically introducing readers to here is everything he's worked on did you know about this did you know about this so i'm curious for you guys what is your favorite alan moore comic book or graphic novel or just piece of work that he's produced how about you michael
0: well i mean obviously Watchmen is you know the, the paramount of all comics you know it's you know it is it praised by all, and even though the movie people don't like, whatever, for whatever reason. But you know a book that I really, really like of his? I really liked, even though it's very long, is From Hell. That's a really good book. Yeah, I saw the movie. I never read the book. It's really long. Really, really long. I do like a couple of the volumes of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And that's why when that movie came out, I was so bummed at how bad it was. Because the books are so interesting, and there's there's so much depth and detail to them that it's it was a major letdown that it could have been so much better than it was what about you dan
2: i was pretty late to his work but i had heard people talk about Watchmen so many times that i was like i was post-college you know age and so i read the book and, and i see its influence everywhere uh, yeah what's that show on uh, amazon right now
1: the boys the boys yes
2: 100 right yeah it's 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 in that same vein and so, yeah. yeah, the impact is felt everywhere. I was also disappointed with the movie. The book should be a multi-part series, you know.
0: But yeah.
1: I think it is, right? Or is it like a... Well, well, no, or- the, 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 the HBO series is a sequel. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. It takes place after. I I haven't watched it because I'm like, I I would like to see that 12 issue story told in a 12 episode miniseries that would be really cool I'd, i don't care what happens afterwards to be honest with you
1: but you got a 12 hour movie from Zack snyder michael
0: <laughs> it is long but it's 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 a fine movie it's again it's not great it could have been better but it's one of those things where like you know i i questioned if Zack snyder was the right guy to tackle that movie as well
1: Yeah. well i mean visually he he jumped everything right off the page it's just yeah like was there the heart and everything else behind it the characterizations Mm, a few characters but not all and i mean really we should be thankful they didn't make the Watchmen movie they were going to make in 1989 1990 because that yeah i mean that was like totally not even related it had the characters but the story was just like huh but like for me alan moore like i love a lot of his just one-off annual stories and i have like a collective Alan Moore in the DC universe, and I love a lot of those things. But the one experiment from Alan Moore that I love, he launched a six-issue series in 1993 through Image, and it was called 1963 and basically the premise was what if Alan Moore had been part of the original Marvel bullpen in the 60s so it's his take on the Fantastic Four but he calls them Mystery Incorporated he has a wisecracking Spider-Man clone called the Fury Horus Lord of Light who was an Egyptian Thor and so like he did a bunch of stuff like that he even did like the Tomorrow Syndicate which was basically the Avengers bringing all the characters together but it had fake ads it had fake letters section it had bullpen bulletins like all that stuff Stuff, but it was done in the style of a 60s comic book from marvel and they are just so fun like and it's like you know again he's creating his own little universe there and it's just it's so much fun to read i mean i remember the first time i read Watchmen at a barnes and noble and just like grabbed it off the shelf and flipped through it and i was like okay you know this is interesting but if You want something that speaks to me, and the one time Alan Moore was fun, (laughs) it was his 1963 series. Always provocative, always interesting, but this was fun.
0: If you want to read an Alan Moore book that's not super long, but very, very interesting, is his Superman, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. That's a really good book too. Very interesting. They're they're making it into an animated film with DC animation coming out later this year or early next year, I think. I'm curious to see how that animated movie is gonna to translate to the way the book was, which was another really good story.
1: Well, judging by most DC animated films not well
0: probably they they have
1: like a 25 percent success rate with me their output something about it it's always stilted the dialogue there's something wrong with the way that they splice it, or they're just getting bad actors to do the work but it just never quite comes together for me occasionally there's some fun ones but
0: the most recent one is a justice league dark apocalypse war that was actually really 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 good like i highly recommend it i was very very impressed
1: yeah and i like the first justice league dark they released also that was pretty good as was the uh, the judas contract adaptation mm. they did that was pretty fun i mean I, I obviously i love um the new frontier i thought it was a pretty good one way back when all right so michael we're talking about movies here so
0: why don't you take us into heroes in motion <laughs> Hollywood Heroes section is jam-packed with content this month. Again, we're bringing up this ill-fated, doomed James Cameron Spider-Man movie that everyone seems to think is going to happen but never really did. It says, The Carol Coe studio who owns the rights is going bankrupt and there is no script and the casting rumors of Arnold Schwarzenegger as Dr. Octopus and Jack Nicholson as the Green Goblin are just rumors no kidding i'm not (laughs) shocked by that at at all i I hope we can stop hearing about this james cameron movie because it's so annoying to hear about it and then like imagining it's going to come to something and it never does it's just like let it go it's not going to happen we've been talking about it every month so then steven spielberg's amblin entertainment and warner brothers are apparently developing a plastic man film for christmas of 1993 that Michael Jackson approached the producer to star in the movie. Okay. <laughs> apparently spielberg is leaning towards bruce willis and andy mangles mentioning paul rubens aka Pee-wee herman was also once in the running as well i cannot see bruce willis as plastic man i just as funny as he is and you know like he's not plastic man and michael jackson i can't see that either i don't know
1: and obviously the movie never happened but i would say like if they were going to make a modern day movie i mean obviously once jim carrey got on the scene if they had made it in the 90s he would have been the guy but i would say i feel like ben schwartz i don't know if you guys know ben schwartz he just voiced sonic in the sonic the hedgehog movie he was yes. john ralphio on parks
0: and rec he'd be a great plastic man he's got a good personality too he's also um if you ever watch silicon valley he's on that as well and he's hilarious on that too he's very very funny he's a he would be good i like that good call so now apparently a fifth superman film is in development with a 40 million dollar budget where superman is shrunk and depowered by aliens with rumors that Brainiac is the main villain behind the plot. But Christopher Reeve had said he would only return if he could absolutely knock people out because the last one was such a disappointment. But the Kids filed for bankruptcy... So this will likely not move forward as a movie. And I I would have loved to see Christopher Reeve have one more shot to make a better Superman film than Superman 4 and even Superman 3.
1: What's with depowering Superman? We already did that in Superman 2. We want to see him use his powers. We don't want to see him deal with no powers.
0: We, we also want to see him fly in reverse again and, and turn the turn the earth around and we want to see him do the Superman kiss where he makes Lois Lane forget everything, you know? Like th- that's a funny thing about those movies is they manifest powers for Superman that I wish they didn't because I feel like it's hurt his legacy in movies going forward because people can't relate because they're like, but he could fly backwards in time and reset the clock. I'm like, but he can't do that for real. Well, common. but in
1: the Silver Age, he could. In the Silver Age, he had new powers every issue. So, I mean, like, there there was a precedent about the people making the movies read Superman back then. So that's the problem. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. So Joel Silver, super producer Joel Silver, as he likes to be referred to as, has abandoned his plans for... A Green Lantern film, a Judge Dredd film, and V for Vendetta, but Richie Rich is in negotiations uh, with Macaulay Culkin to star, which did end up getting made.
1: Uh, I just think that's hilarious. It's like all these cool movies, he couldn't get it done. But Richie Rich, that's a go-picture
2: a joel silver judge dread would have been awesome
0: it's funny v for vendetta has made a huge comeback on on digital and streaming right now and it's being promoted by netflix and on itunes if you look it pops up all the time recently another alan moore
1: graphic novel i love that movie i've read the graphic novel
0: i never read the graphic novel but i did love the movie i loved that movie a really big fan of it i've actually liked both judge dread movies too the stallone one and the uh carl urban one they're both very good we probably The yeah, Carl Erber
1: going. one is better, but, yeah, I mean, it's also a
0: ripoff though, of The Raid. Yeah, the Carl Erber one was
2: very much a video game.
0: Yeah. So it so was a raid, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's funny that, you know, Richie Rich was the movie that got made, but again, it's again, you gotta look at it like this. Macaulay Culkin was so huge at this time because of the Home Alone movies that, like, he was the it kid. Like, oh, we gotta get him in everything, and that was kind of... It makes sense that that ended up being the movie. So, Sean Young who lost the role of Vicki Vale in the first Batman film, then infamously wore a homemade Catwoman costume to perform an unscheduled audition for Tim Burton, is now set to star in a female superhero movie called... The Black Cat, based on a Harvey comic from the 1940s by Batman producers uh, Michael Uslan and Benjamin Melmiker, which also never happened. Sean Young is a funny actress. Like, I saw her audition once of her, like, Catwoman costume thing that she did, and it was awkward to say the least it's just like hard to watch like oh okay but i I like her as an actress she's got a cool look to her she's got a good personality but i just that audition i saw that i was like oh boy i could see why they didn't call her back on that one
1: Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. This Black Cat character—if you go back and look at it—I mean, this is in the '40s, and she's riding a motorcycle. She's like a movie actress who also fights crime on the side. It's really interesting to see. They're like, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna make a—you know—Catwoman's big in Batman Returns. We'll make the Black Cat. No relation to Marvel. And I wonder if Marvel somehow shut that down.
0: Interesting. Um, the Toxic Crusaders, a cartoon series based on Troma's ultra-violent The Toxic Avengers movie, is now going to be turned into a live-action film, which never happened.
1: It's like, we turned this movie into a cartoon, now we're turning the cartoon into a live-action movie. That's the Ninja Turtles version.
0: But they had the yeah the, the whole
2: Playmates figures line. Mm-hmm. The, the cartoon was successful, so I, I totally see this Like
1: they were trying to do the reverse I mean, it would have been fascinating if Troma somehow got into kid friendly films. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, what if that just changed their whole business model because Toxic Crusaders was a success, which it wasn't, unfortunately. Yeah.
0: Finally, Damon Wayans is set to co star with his brother Keenan Ivory Wayans in Blank Man, though in Living Color, cast member David Allen Greer ultimately gets that role. Mangles suggests that maybe they can cast Marlon Wayans as his sidekick to make up for him being cut out of. Batman Returns. I love Blank Man. People think like I'm crazy, but it's such a fun movie, and it's like a cool, cute take on superhero satire that I just find this movie hilarious. And I've always loved the whole In Living Color crew. Yeah, this has always been my theory about Blank
1: Man, and it's probably wrong. But you remember on In Living Color, there's so much on that show. uh, There's a reason it's not streaming anywhere because it was not PC and especially now, nowadays. But Damon Wayans had a character called Handyman, who is a handicapped <laughs> character. And I have a theory that this film started out as a script for Handyman, and they were going to turn it... And the, this, the studio was like, no, we're you are not making Handyman. And so yeah. they just tweaked a few things, and it became Blank Man. I would love to
2: know
0: if that is true or not.
2: It's very interesting. Do you guys know the trivia behind Marlon Wayans and Batman Returns?
0: Who was he going to play? I was just getting caught up. So originally... Marlon Wayans was cast to be Robin in Batman Returns, and actually he had signed a contract, and then they rewrote the script, and they wrote Robin out of that script. They already made the action figure for it, Jeez. and... And the whole thing like if you look at the, the original Robin action figure for Batman Returns he's slightly darker in pigment and he's got kind of like a flat top haircut but yeah they wow. ultimately he did he didn't end up in the film
1: this is the perfect transition to take us into Azrael's action figure Fury. So in this issue... Brian Cunningham is bugged by the fact that the Batman Returns Robin figure has a flat top. He says, quote, his head is so flat you can land a helicopter on it. It, He doesn't seem to have any concept of the whole Marlon Wayans controversy or anything. All he knows is they made this figure and it looks a little weird. He also mentions that the Catwoman figure, he's describing it as, quote, gawky and bad. And so, Michael,
0: what is your response to the fact that this Catwoman figure is gawky and bad? this guy's crazy he doesn't know what he's talking about that figure was perfect like the entire line of figures minus the robin flat top mystery at the time were perfect every batman figure that they came out with the penguin figures even though they weren't the same look as the Danny DeVito version. They were more like the 60s version of Penguin. They were just perfect. And all the. I had a lot of the vehicles. I have my brand new sealed-in package that Adam got me for my birthday sitting on my mantle. So it's fantastic.
1: Well, this may give you some insight as to his point of view because he says some of them are pretty neat. I especially like the yellow-clad deep-dive bat suit. I had that one too. I love that one. But uh, here's the thing, though. He mentions having a hard time finding the Max Shrek figure, stating that it's being shipped one per case and only in certain parts of the country. For those who don't recall, Max Shrek was Christopher Walken in Batman Returns. Guess what? There was
0: no Max Shrek figure there was no Max Shrek figure. Trust me, I, I I would have known. I would have seen it somewhere on the internet Yeah. it doesn't, doesn't exist. I mean, no... This
1: must have been a rumor that was just going around. It's like, it exists. It's just short-packed. You can't find it. I, I looked, you know, did a little research. The only thing I found was somebody on Twitter made a custom reaction figure style Max Shrek figure, but it didn't even look like Christopher Walken. It's terrible. But I thought that was a weird rumor to have existed back then because, yeah, we didn't get the screen-accurate penguin like you said so of course they're not going to make a max shrek
0: figure who would want that So speaking of rumors and speaking of batman returns have you guys heard the the buzz around the internet now that the the flashpoint movie is going to feature now michael keaton as the batman of 89 and, and 92 in modern day and the, the rumor is that he's going to transition into be doing either Batman Beyond or to become mentor to a Batgirl film and now, I read this tonight they're trying to get Michelle Pfeiffer to come on as well in the Flashpoint movie to play Selena Kyle I was going to say they have to do that
1: because she's also talked vocally about how she wanted to do a sequel, she really loved that character, so it only makes sense that she would come back to it after all these years with him.
0: Her first Instagram post was her practicing using the whips still that she still has the whip oh
1: that is so cool all right also in here um so i don't know if you guys remember this but before there were these great lines by kenner and toy biz and everything else there was a period where you really could only get superhero figures for the most part as pvc sculpted little figurines And so in this issue, there's an ad for this company that has both DC and Marvel characters, three to four inch high PVC figures, and they're selling them for $10 a piece or three for $25. And I'm just like, what? You could go to any store at this period and pick up an action figure that looks 10 times better for $4.99. Why would I want to pay? And they look terrible. I mean, they're not good. (laughs) (laughs) And So I'm like, who are these people? What were they? They're like, they're like a decade by... Behind in the whole idea of marketing superhero figures, uh, I just thought that was hilarious. We'll post that on social
0: media for everybody to see. Are, are these PVC figures? Can they move? Or are they just like frozen? No, they're
1: just, yeah, they're just like a little figurine. Like, but they they don't move. They don't have points of articulation. It's one piece. There's no moving parts.
0: Oh, forget forget it. Yeah, ten bucks. No, no, thank you. I need my characters to kick and punch and turn their heads. <laughs> <laughs> They have to deep dive. So I, I have two daughters, and Grace is obsessed with Batman and Spider Man. And and today she was playing with some ribbon, right? And she tied it around Spider Man's wrist, and she started hanging it from like our chairs and the the hooks. And she's like pulling him and like ratcheting him up and down. And she's like, "Look, Daddy, Spider Man's using his web and climbing up and down the walls." And then she like has Batman drive in with the Batmobile, and she's like drop spider-man on top of the batmobile she's like they're best friends they're gonna drive off together now i was like <laughs> my, my wife goes you wanted a boy but you've got the perfect one right here she does everything you want her to do she's playing with spider-man and batman all day long i was like hey what
1: can raising I- her right michael that complain. is fantastic <laughs> just had to share that with you guys that's awesome but speaking of guys who love superheroes michael let's activate rob and todd's hype machine.
0: I can't believe you're dumping this one on me. Oh, here we go. <laughs> All right. The, the old hype machine, folks. All right. So there is an entire article profiling the original image founders and newcomer Dale Keown. I don't know how to say it. Who has quit Marvel to write and draw a pit. It's mentioned that when Spawn debuted in May... It outsold X-Men, Spider-Man, and Batman. I believe it. From the amount of hype that they promoted it and, and just the buzz around Spawn, I could see that it outsold everything because it was just such a new character and the look was so different. I, I could believe that. We get more details on Rob's supreme book that basically tells the story of a Superman-like being who is described as a very dangerous, spoiled brat who left Earth for 50 years and upon his return is jealous of the young Heroes taking away from his godlike status. I wonder if this is connected to that movie that came out last year of the evil Superman boy or whatever it was. What was it called? Uh, Brightburn. Like they did like an archetype Superman where he comes to Earth, as a, but it's a kid and he's Clark Kent essentially, and he's evil and he kills everybody. I had no movie?
1: idea that's what that movie was about. I heard that name
0: and I didn't. Yeah. Now I'm gonna go watch it. Yeah, because I was like, yeah.
1: "Brightburn," I don't know what this is. That was also the preface of that comic book, Irredeemable. Yes, which is a
0: really good book. It's by Boom Comics. I love Irredeemable. It's ridiculously good.
1: I read like the first ten issues and it, yeah, it was pretty good. Uh, but yeah, I, I just think it's interesting because this is another we you know, we've been talking about. Alan Moore. So Rob Liefeld launches Supreme, but then eventually he turns it over to Alan and more and that's when it gets like its prestige and he really is writing his version of superman you know yeah and so i found that interesting but i, I know what dan you were saying you were getting in to all the image guys where were you on rob versus todd um todd all the way <laughs> <laughs> did you ever pick up
2: a, a young Blood or anything by rob I, I, I did i tried to give him a fair shake and uh, but did i knew you? i was i was with todd when he was on spider-man Amazing, you know I have amazing three hundred right over here. And it never leaves my side.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, the the first appearance of Venom was pretty much sealed the deal, and then ever since then I just followed his career. I still follow him on Facebook.
0: You didn't like Lythel's tiny feet on everybody. You you, we were, no. you know, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I liked I, I liked it.
1: Bedrock. He had a he had a cool look to him. Oh, excuse us, lawyers, Bad Rock. Yes, it, I'm sorry. Bad is it Bad Rock? <laughs> He started out as Bedrock in the early days. That's and right. They, they had to change it. Hannah barbera right. was like, nope. nope. <laughs> really?
0: I, I didn't know that. Well, oh, because wow. his
1: catchphrase was yabba-dabba-doom.
0: Yeah. No. And
1: they're like, what are you doing, Rob Liefeld? You are not allowed to do this,
0: sir. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, wow. I didn't know that. Okay. So, in this issue, Rob is mentioned eight times, and Todd is only mentioned four times. So... The grand total through 14 issues at this point is Rob, 89, and Todd, 83. And the fact that Adam has had to count this (laughs) 172 times, I give you a lot of credit, dude.
1: I couldn't even have done that math, by the way, as fast as you did it. So (laughs) this is my sacrifice for the show, doing math.
0: So that is our Robin Todd's hype machine for October of ninety two. And Adam, let's open up Robin's Reading Rainbow. Rocky Robin. Yeah. Rocky
1: Robin. Blow Rocky Robin we really rock yeah. Oh yeah. All right, so this is very fun. So we are not doing Punisher's Price Guide this month because we really wanted to expand this section. There, there's so many awesome comics coming out. That's ultimately what this show is about. What were the comics on the stands and what could you buy? So at this time, we had Hardcore number one, night stalkers number one supreme number one right so those were the big books coming out but also from dc a book called Congo congorilla number one <laughs> which is described as congo bill is trapped in the battered body of an accident victim as an evil mind inhabits the body of the golden gorilla Huh? <laughs> I don't what is happening? Like that okay, DC. I mean take some chances, but yeah, that was strange. Also, Marvel making some strange choices as well with the Punisher Back to School special. Oh. Wow. Yeah, the Punisher poses as a substitute gym teacher to shut down a gang that's stealing guns in school. Wait a second. That sounds like a movie plot. <laughs> that's yeah. like on a very special episode of the punisher there were there were great ideas and there were interesting ideas um but also hitting the racks this month are two books that we are actually reviewing and the first of these is uncanny x-men number 294 executioner song part one so here's what wizard has to say to get us to want to pick up this issue all right well folks it all begins here it's the 12 part fall mutant crossover not fall of the mutants just so you guys know (laughs) known as executioner's song after the conclusion of the cable limited series mutant bad guy strife yes the guy with the helmet that can't possibly fit through your average doorway is poised and ready to confront and destroy his enemies the x-men mr sinister and apocalypse first comes an attempt to kill professor x with all clues leading to everyone's favorite gun-toting mutie cable then cyclops and gene gray are kidnapped these two occurrences lead to the x-men splitting into their blue and gold teams one to find and free cyclops and gene the other to tackle cable and his merry band of brats x-force throughout this series which, of course, through the pages of X-Men, X-Factor, and X-Force, we will see such entertaining sights as Bishop and Wolvie taking on Cable, and Archangel meeting up with his chief tormentor, Apocalypse. So fasten your seatbelts, sweet lovers. Marvel's giving us a fall brawl to remember. <laughs> so, what did you guys think of this issue?
0: Dan, I'll let you go first. What's, what's your thoughts? Well,
2: I think the first half was very much like a episode of Saved by the Bell. <laughs> That is for sure. There was Very lots good of
0: analogy. I like that. Yeah. Lots of
2: interteam romances going on.
0: The X Men are so horny. They are. I I had no idea that that Gambit and Storm were a thing. Like I didn't know I that. I didn't was... know
2: that they were. What was going on there? So in his first appearance, he's associated with her. So I think they've always kind of had a, an attachment.
1: Well, what's weird is you have Bishop and Rogue just yeah. like on assignment. And they're everybody's dressed in these like, basically, I guess you would call it their casual wear. But what's funny is that Rogue, her bodysuit is just a different color. Yeah. So it's red and white and yellow instead of her regular, you know, green and yellow. And it, it's she's got sneakers on, you know, you're just like, that's weird. But she also has a joke with Bishop about the pie in the face incident from X-Men number eight that we reviewed a few episodes back. Mm-hmm. And we learned that the pie was boysenberry. So if you're <laughs> ever in a trivia contest, X-Men <laughs> trivia, it was boysenberry pie. They gave it charged up and threw at Bishop and it hit Rogue in the face.
0: yeah the the, the first half of it is very dainty couples and stuff but then as it as it turns to like the actual like protest and then so the thing that really threw me was so you got cyclops and gene at this kind of like restaurant and then out of nowhere this guy comes crashing through the ceiling and i'm like that seems very shoehorned in like just comes out of nowhere and then you're kind of thrown into the action from there I thought one of the best parts of the whole thing is when Xavier is kind of doing his speech – and he's talking about names that they would call mutants and it was it was very interesting and it was like this is what you would think of when you really thought of the x-men as xavier is the spokesperson to like try to bring people together and show that we're not so different or whatever and that was really cool and then as the story goes on cable just started shooting everybody up and
1: well and here's my question when cable shoots professor x how could they miss him his shoulder pads and his armor are massive and he's just wearing a trench coat over it. it's like
0: who's this giant guy walking through (laughs) the crowd? I don't get it yeah I don't. There's, there's a couple of plot holes in this story that don't make any sense
1: yeah I mean and it's interesting because I mean it's written by Scott Lobdell who goes on to be a very prolific X-Men writer and then it's penciled by a guy named Brandon Peterson who I'm not super familiar with his work it's in the Jim Lee style but but it's inked by Terry Austin who is like legendary with the X-Men I mean he inked most of the classic X-Men stories in the Claremont Burn era so I mean like it's great that you have him still involved with the book, but like you said, Michael, like it is really weird because you have so much going on. I mean, Scott is getting busted again by gene for daydreaming of Psylocke. <laughs> it's like, you got a telepath for a girlfriend, and his only explanation is he's like, "Yeah, there's, I'm a man, and she's a woman, a very sexy woman." Yeah. But, but you know, I've always loved you. Yeah. Like that's his <laughs> <a> justification. <laughs> Since we met, I've loved you. Oh, Scott, uh, you're right. You yeah, know, like that's pretty lame. But my favorite part is, yeah. There's this random fight with Caliban and these four horsemen of Apocalypse that are attacking them. And at a certain point, there's a character called Famine. Yeah. And she tries to attack, but it gets blasted back at her and she starts shrinking and shriveling up. And her cohort here, he's like... (gasps) What have they done to you? And Iceman says she must have tried to use her emaciation power on Colossus. Because he doesn't need food in his armored form, she was forced to feed off herself.
0: Literally. It's like wow. Yeah, that's a lot of exposition.
1: But overall, if this was your jumping on point for X-Men and it's like, oh there's a big event happening, it's being polybagged with the trading cards you want to get, would you have wanted to check out the next issue based on this? Uh,
0: I mean I probably would have bought it just because the sake of to figure out what happened to. Xavier in the next issue, but I don't know how, how long I would hang on after that.
2: I'm a fan of cable. I'm interested in why is he shooting Professor X? So I wasn't impressed with this particular issue, but it was definitely a kicking off point and made me raise questions of what was cable doing and why was he doing it, and I need to figure out why.
1: Yeah, and I think that was really yeah the big selling point of this, right? It's like cable's gone bad, we gotta solve that mystery, and so everybody wants to know it. He was already mysterious himself. You know, I personally was not a super big fan of cables, but I do think that is a great hook. It's just like, wait, why did somebody just shoot Professor X, who's a good guy supposedly? So yeah, I, I probably would have grabbed another issue just to say, okay, what is this?
0: Is this like when Xavier com- becomes onslaught later on, or or like
1: no, that, that that's that much, late. that's a couple much, years mu- down the line, much now. later, right? Yeah,
0: that's further down. Yeah.
1: But the second book we are reviewing here, Spider-Man 2099, number one. Here's what Wizard had to say. Hey, wait a minute, Spidey's flying. What's going on here? No, gang, you didn't miss an important issue of any of your favorite Spider-Man titles. Your imagination imaginations just being transferred to the year 2099, courtesy of your pals at Marvel. Spider-Man 2099 is the first of four 2099 titles coming your way, with Spidey debuting in September with a special foil-stamped cover. Spider-Man 2099 is the saga of Miguel O'Hara, a top-notch scientist in the field of genetics at Alchemax, one of the foremost companies on the planet in 2099, while engaged in an experiment something goes wacky and miguel becomes imprinted with the genetics of a spider along with these genetics come not only the strength speed and agility of a spider but also the appearance of a spider needless to say it seems that mr o'hara's life is now going to be radically different spider-man 2099 number one is the latest great spidey treat marvel is unleashing in celebration of old webhead's 30th anniversary all right, guys, I'm curious to know. This is a book written by Peter David. You know, he'd been writing The Hulk and X-Factor, penciled by Rick Lenardi, who had worked on X-Men and Spider-Man. and I think most famously, a lot of people associate him with Cloak and Dagger. So what did you guys think just when you heard back in the day that there was 2099 of this whole universe being launched? Do you even remember it? Was it on your radar?
0: I I knew of it years later. I didn't know that when it was being launched. I just remember seeing pictures of this new look for Spider-Man. I actually do have this issue because somebody gave it to me, but I I never read it at the time. I was just reading so many different books. and like, I just, can I add another story on about Spider-Man? Because I had like three different books I was reading, amazing and spectacular at the time. Dan, what about you?
2: I remember the foil cover distinctly, and I remember seeing it a lot. But I also, I can't remember how old I was, but I was also very aware that there were number one, everything's you know Mm -hmm. everybody was starting over everybody was telling a new story everybody was so there was lots of you know the old especially with Marvel there was a lot of like reboot everything and so it it, kind of got lost in that for me was I just thought okay it's just another and I actually had never read it up until recently
1: I'll mention for me see everybody talks about X-Men number one was my jumping on point I was so excited to be something that was sort of free of continuity it felt like a fresh beginning that's what this was for me it hit at just the right time where I said oh there's a new universe happening so I bought all four there was Spider-Man 2099 was the first to come out then there was Ravage 2099 then there was Doom 2099 and finally Punisher 2099 and I was just like oh this is going to be so cool and so that was like that was the exciting thing for me i was like oh i'll be there at the very beginning of a character and i stayed on this book you know for the first year and a half or so like i just bought every issue but the, just as a little bit of history for you guys the 2099 concept was originally john byrne and stan lee were collaborating to imagine the future of the marvel universe and ravage who was like the brand new character that wasn't based on a previously existing marvel hero john philip ravage he was going to be the main character of their book and then they were going to maybe spin stuff off from that but basically that collaboration ended they didn't produce anything but the editorial staff at marvel realized that you know sales shoot up on books whenever we do like days of future past or iron man 2020 or whoever it is like so if you talk about the future we sell more books so they said let's turn it into its own line of books people will be interested and so we've talked about in the past there was these original concept sketches for the characters that were very different than what they went with but it's weird um, in my research for this episode I bought this issue of Comics Values Monthly which was coming out concurrently with Wizard this was their October 1992 issue and on the cover they are featuring the original sketches but on the inside they have all the pictures of the published versions so it's really bizarre that they for whatever reason, I don't know if they thought that was what they wanted to do realistically like this uh, this will be the tease but then we'll show you the real thing or if it's just like ah, this is what we have and they just threw it out there but this Spider-Man 2099 was actually previewed in one of the 30th anniversary Spider-Man books that was the black cover and it had the hologram on it like the other three and also in the October 1999 92 issue of Marvel Age magazine uh, they had Joey Cavalleri, who was the editor of the 2099 line was interviewed and giving all his information and they also included a one page teaser which just featured a person falling out of a futuristic high rise and his, uh, you know, the description says that he was high on the drug Rapture which is part of Spider-Man's story and basically he just falls to his death and then at the end it shows all the other 2099 characters that are getting their books And it says, there are no heroes in 2099. At least, not yet. (laughs) But I was like, that's your preview? Okay.
0: Dan, as you you can tell, Adam knows more about comics than I know about most anything in my life. It's amazing. I can just listen to him like, wow,
1: how do you know this stuff? So this is the the question I have for you guys then. This book opens with a huge shot of Spider-Man 2099. How did you feel the book progressed after that point?
0: So, the initial splash page is a double wide of the character, and it looks awesome. This is going to be interesting. And then about five pages in, I'm like, where's this story going? And I got really bored, and it took me a while to finish it. I was like, ah, I can't. I had a hard time getting through it. I just was not interested until, like, the last last page, where I was like, oh, okay. It, it didn't really grab me, I'm, I'll be honest. Even though I love the look of Spider-Man 99, and, and that initial splash page is beautiful and really well done, this this story didn't do it for me i'm not gonna lie yeah i mean
1: it's a story that's told in reverse right so they
0: made they made a smart choice
1: by giving you okay here is like spider-man in action but now he's saying and here's how i got to this point and that's the rest of the book but dan how were you involved in this world what did you think about it
2: i didn't know much of anything going in and same thing there's a big without a lack of a better term, a big splash in the beginning with the opening action sequence. But then as we started reading, yeah, I, I felt the same thing Mike did as is like there's this lull, right? And I'm like, who are these people? What's what's the deal? This guy's kind of a loser. You, you know, what's this guy's deal? And then you get the big reveal at the end. And you're like, oh, OK, 1990s, you know, <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, I mean, this 2099 universe, they really are like it's a slow build in this book to set it up because basically you're seeing Miguel O'Hara is kind of this snarky scientist who's working on genetic engineering because in the future, there aren't like states and countries. Everything is owned by a corporation. So there's Alchemax owns a certain area. There's Stark Fujikawa and they own a different area. And, And the way that you gain land is they have literal corporate raiders Corporate raiders are enhanced human beings that go and fight and steal and overcome, you know, these other corporations. Then your company gets bigger and you rule a larger you know, section of the earth. And so what Miguel O'Hara's job is, is to genetically engineer these corporate raiders. And so he's working with this guy who he's just like being a total jerk to. And he's got an idea for a new corporate raider. And he's saying his name was Spider-Man, one of the premier boys from the old heroic age around the turn of the century entry proportionate strength of a spider and the idea is that he's going to find the genetics and apply it and so he's forced into doing a test on a prisoner who has volunteered that if he survives he gets freedom but instead it horribly mutates the guy and then he says like even though he's a jerk he's like ah this is wrong i don't want to be involved in this anymore so he goes to his boss and says i'm gonna quit and the boss is like yeah let's share a glass of wine and we'll talk about it Then he's like by the way I dosed your wine with Rapture. So you are going to be horribly addicted to this drug, and the only place to get it is Alchemax, our company. So it looks like you'll be working here forever because we own you now. And so that's the big thing. Is like, oh no, you know, he was betrayed, and now he's going to be stuck working for them. Also, the one thing that's fun is just in the future, he has a holographic assistant. If you saw, you know, Blade Runner 2049, it's basically like that. Her name is Lila, and she like follows him around the apartment, and she's His answering machine, she's everything. But ultimately what happens is he says, I want to get rid of this rapture out of my system. And he's like, luckily I have my genetic code pre-rapture in the computer system. So I could go and imprint my old genetic code on myself and it'll cure me. But... The guy he was a jerk to, who is his lab assistant, is getting revenge on him. So he basically pulls up the Spider-Man program and then pushes every button to the extreme and so it explodes. And then, Dan, you alluded to the big reveal at the end. How would you describe that? What happened to him? He's coming out of the
2: machine with his eyes glowing and his puts his hands out and it's got the distinctive Spider-Man 2099 claws dropping off the fingertips. So you learn that that's who he is, so.
1: Yeah. So the book itself is very light on Spider-Man 2099, like you said. So like as a kid reading this, like really the only thing that kept me coming back was, oh, well, what's going to happen next? Because I want to see more of that costume design. But yeah, most of it is just people in suits. It's it's a lot lot of talking and setting up a universe, but not so much action and excitement. So, but would you guys, do you think if you had picked this up, would you have wanted to continue reading? Was Were you like me, where the hook of the costume was enough?
0: Ten-year-old me would be like, this is boring. No, I'm not going to read this again. <laughs> uh, even though I do like the look of the character and is a very interesting character, whenever he pops up in any of the Spider-Verse stories, it's always a, a, a compelling kind of story. And the problem I have with Spider-Man 99 is he's not really like... You look at Peter Parker or even Miles Morales. They're genuinely good. And this character is not as good as those two archetype Spider-Man characters, you know? And, and that kind of doesn't do it for me. Cause like you look for Peter Parker, it's like, he's just this good person.
1: Well, and I, I would say that, you know, it, as a counter-argument, remember that if you actually go back and read that first appearance of Peter Parker becoming Spider-Man, he's kind of bitter. He's actually not a nice guy. And you know, remember, the whole reason is he gets a swelled head, he lets the crook go, and Uncle Ben gets killed. I mean, he wasn't that good a guy at the beginning, and people forget that, because we know how great he becomes. Man. And that's the same with Miguel here, is, yeah, he is a total jerk at the beginning of this issue. You'd be like, ah, He's like, James. Todd level he's so incorrigible but then you see he has a little bit of a soul because he wants to quit he wants to get out he's like this is wrong I don't want to do it anymore and yeah as he evolves throughout the series you do realize okay he's becoming more and more of a a person that's not about himself but yeah it, the main thing if you want to look at just the differences of the character because they, they openly said we're trying to make him different than Peter Parker you know he's half Hispanic he's half Irish Miguel O'Hara and also his costume is one that he wore to the Day of the Dead festival in Mexico and it is Death's Head is the character that is on his chest and if you guys remember Death's Head is like this British Marvel Comics character and I thought that was such a weird thing to make that his insignia but that's just a little weird trivia and then also ultimately he gets organic web spinners before Spider-Man ever did you know he doesn't stick to walls he literally spikes himself to walls so that's the other difference and then he has fangs now. <laughs> oh yeah, and his eyes are all white, and he's very sensitive to light. Yeah, but it's just like those were like the big deals. He's like he's turned into a literal monster. You know, it's kind of how they were going with it initially. To counterpoint what Mike was we saying earlier, uh,
2: Miguel's flawed just like Peter Parker was, but in different ways. And mm-hmm. there's kind of like a parallel there where he he has the you know the drug problem, he has relationship issues. You know, it's very similar to the things that Peter Parker's going through, just different. So I thought that was kind of clever, and yeah, I think that the the first issue would have uh, put me off just
0: because of the the lull in
1: the in the opener. Now, what do you guys think about the art? Just generally speaking, I wasn't impressed.
0: I wasn't uh, impressed. I mean, th- other than that big splash page, I wasn't impressed. Otherwise, it wasn't really. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's definitely very stylized. And like I said, for me as a kid, like it was the world that they were presenting. And I was just like, well, they're going to reveal more and I'll know more. And so what I've actually done now, because like I said, I bought a lot of Spider-Man 2099, but not the other titles. My stimulus check this year, when we all got our checks, but a majority of it went to actually collecting the entire 2099 line. (laughs) So I spent $2,099, no, not quite, but I'm literally going now, issue by issue, in order of release, so there were a couple Spider-Man issues before the other issues, so I am exploring the world of 2,099 in full, and Michael, I'm going to start inserting some reviews into the mini-episodes, just <laughs> uh, to beef okay. them up a bit. Please so do. for all of you who are so interested in the 2,099 <laughs> universe, I have invested in it, for me, and for you! Oh goody.
0: I'm going to I'm going to ask your <laughs> wife to be a guest host one night and and I'm going to ask her some questions directly about you like please <laughs> enlighten me <laughs>
1: I need to know uh, I don't know that eye rolling is going to translate well <laughs> on the mic <laughs>
0: we'll we'll hear it we'll hear the roll of the eyes
1: (laughs) but also as an added incentive for you to listen to those mini episodes we are announcing a 2099 giveaway that's right we have a prize pack you can win a copy of spider-man 2099 number one plus some other goodies by giving us your idea for which marvel character you think should have gotten the 2099 treatment so if you want to give us a little bio what would have made them different or just say like you know such and such 2099 We will post this on social media as well, but we will make sure that you get a chance to win that if you are interested. Okay.
0: And I'll add a little caveat to that. If you do send us some stuff, I will read them on the mini episodes. How about that? All right. So Dan, every once in a while, we like to do a little thing called Riddle Me This. I usually quiz myself and do absolutely horribly. I feel like, would you like to be quizzed by me that you can answer, try to answer some of these questions? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Here we go. So contest for number 14. The grand prize of the time was a set of X-Men number one covers A through E autographed by Jim Lee. Oh, wow. Uh, that was pretty cool. That's a pretty cool contest prize. The first prize. Prizes are a limited edition silver X-Men premium hologram or Wizard gold foil Spawn trading card, your choice. Uh, second prizes are a set of 1992 Skybox X-Men trading cards, cards only, or a complete set of Infinity War number one through six, again your choice. And the third prize winners would would get a limited edition San Diego Comic-Con Wizard number one. Or a Gray Hulk variant Wizard number six. Your oh, choice. I want that. Oh, that would be my choice. I don't know that Jim Lee autograph of all the covers is pretty amazing. Of a grand. Ah, cover.
1: everybody has that. Who
0: has the Gray <laughs> Hulk Wizard cover? Come on. All right. So just looking at this quiz, it is significantly easier than number thirteen, which I absolutely bombed. So, question number one, Dan, is Ren and blank. Stimpy. Stimpy is correct. All right. Number two. This is a little bit harder. The vampire member of the Teen Titans. I never followed the Teen Titans. But is it, what's
1: the name, Mobius? Adam, do you know the answer to this one? Here's the thing. So, it's Team titans not teen titans oh. uh, this was a new book they were launching at the time and so this was like a brand new character and i know his character design like i could see him in my mind but his actual name try to look it up here real quick it is knight rider yeah n-i-g-h-t-r-i-d-e-r
0: knight rider yeah i wonder if they got sued for that when I got rid of that real quick <laughs> that's, um, that's unfortunate yeah. question number three is Valiant Eternal Blank. I don't know this one. Yeah, pass. Yeah.
1: It is Eternal Warrior. I was actually (laughs) just reading it last night. (laughs) Eternal (laughs) Warrior,
0: number one. Of course you were. Of course you were. Was that that part of your stimulus check, too? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, number four. Drew the cover of Wizard Number Four. It is a four letter first name and a five letter last name. I forget who was even on Wizard number four. What was that? I believe it's the Batman cover. That was the Batman cover. You're right. That was the first Batman. Like there's only Batman and the Flash that have been on the cover that have been DC.
1: We mentioned him earlier in the episode.
0: (laughs) I can't remember what I mentioned. Talking about five minutes ago.
1: He was the one who drew the Eclipso Darkness Within, and so (sighs) I mentioned it briefly.
0: All right, Adam, who is it? Card pass.
1: Bart Sears.
0: (laughs) Yes, it fits. So number five, I don't understand how this is related to comics at all. Saturday Night Blank, and it's four letters. Live? that's what i think it is live that's the only thing that would make sense and
1: yeah unless there was some parody storyline comic going
0: on but yeah that's a weird one yeah it doesn't make any sense uh all right so so number six is benjamin j Grimm. you got it dan you got this who is ben Grimm? what's the, the thing? thing yes the thing that is correct ding 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 good job now adam will throw in the cliche because i would have probably screwed (laughs) it up somehow (laughs) (laughs) so now number seven is kirk's best friend i would assume this is captain kirk how many letters five letters
1: oh this is hard because it could go two ways i assume spock
0: I'm saying it's Spock. Also, it
1: could be Bones, though. Like they're 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 you know the trifecta. So that's weird. Uh, Okay, it's probably Spock, though. This is what they're going for.
0: Probably Spock, just by most common answer out of there. Okay, and the last question, number eight, villain of DC Comics summer annuals. (laughs) What? What? It's
1: seven. We just talked about it. We just talked about it. Really? Go for it, Dan. Come on. Wait, we just talked about it. Yeah, starts with an E.
2: Eclipso. <laughs> oh, I was about to say Calypso.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so close, so close, yet so far away. But it's so close that it, I mean, if it had one more letter, it could have been Darkside. But it's very close. So anyway, that's Dan, what I was going to say. Originally, it was Darkside. So you you did significantly better than I have done. On, so great job. Good on my five out of ten. Or. Europe, you are five out of eight. So there you go. Pretty good. All right. Dan, thanks so much for being on. It's really great having you and catching up after more than 15 years of of not seeing each other, let alone talking, yeah. which, again, that was really awesome. I really Yeah, man, it was a good time. It. So that was episode 14 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. And stay tuned for our mini episodes that are coming up. Also, thank you to the Retro Network for hosting us on Spotify and Podbean and YouTube and iTunes and wherever else you host us. We really appreciate everything you guys do. Check out our contests online. And until next time... Time keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.